he went out and it was night. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. She's one of our graduates, by the way, and you're going to, she's going to Stanford University this next year. So, wow. Pray for her. And pray for her mom and dad. They don't want to part with her, but she's going to California. So we're happy for her. Um, we had great news in our family this week. You'll see a picture here. Do we have that? Of our newest grandson. His name is Gabe, Gabriel McDaniel. So we're super happy about that. And we look forward to seeing him soon. Um, we have a tough text today. We're in this study, which is the longest teaching of Jesus. And you'll see the theme for the summer is discipleship. It is Jesus training his disciples. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? How am I going to do this? How will I live this out? So we're in that chapter 13 of the gospel of John. And we have a really hard passage and story today. Maybe the way to begin, sort of the way uh, that got me thinking, um, is to ask a question. Are you harboring any grudges? Are there hurtful things that have been done by somebody to you in the past that you're, you're still holding on to? A couple of years ago, a shocking story came out of North Dakota. It follows this guy. His name is Carl Erickson. He arrived at the home of another man named Norman Johnson and door opened, he shot him and killed him. Everybody was like, what is this? How did this happen? The connection from these guys, it wasn't even apparent until they rewound the clock and realized that this guy, Carl Erickson, had been in high school with Norm Johnson. And when they were in high school, one day after gym class, there was one of those high school pranks that Norm played on Carl. And he never forgot it. Over 50 years passed between that incident in high school and the day that he showed up to shoot him. And there's sort of shock with this. Everybody's like, how could that happen? Really, would that take place 50 years later? Everybody was shocked. And when I heard this story, I thought, I don't think we should be shocked. I mean, think of those things that happened all those years ago to you, and you remember like they happened to you yesterday. And it's because somebody slighted you or they said the wrong thing or they betrayed you, they mistreated you. What are you going to do with that? I like the way Chad Bird describes how, how this sort of progresses in us. He said it like this. When we have been seriously wronged, revenge can rapidly advance through the ranks of our desires to sit unchallenged on the throne of our hearts this seething and rancid God, full of acidic hate, reigned within me for years. The homage he demanded were the liturgies of fantasy, whereby I plotted to get even. You ever done that? Somebody does wrong to you, and you find your mind just sort of working it through and thinking of ways, how might I be able to get back at them? How might I get comeuppance with this person? Now we're taking this next step in this teaching of the disciples and we encounter the story of Judas. And really sort of, you think of this story, we're all tangled up into it. Why does he do this? What's going on? And you know, the scriptures don't tell us his motive, but they reveal to us a heart of a man that is set against Jesus. And what we get to learn as we follow with Jesus is, well, how does he process this? 
How does he treat this person who is there to betray him? And we begin to see how is the door open for forgiveness of others that have hurt us, treating them with grace, and also finding forgiveness for ourselves. Would you pray together with me? Lord, this is dangerous territory for our hearts because we know how wound up we can become by the smallest thing that happens to us. The way we've been treated or a word that's been said. And Father, it gathers strength in our hearts until we find ourselves thinking things we don't want to think. And, and Lord, we wonder how we can be set free, how we can set the other person free. And so I pray that you would, as you do every week, you'd show us Jesus and you'd show us the pathway to freedom and forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The gospel writer, the gospel of John, wrote in his first letter to the church, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, we read about this and we shouldn't be surprised Right, that it's uh, this, this good and evil shapes the plot of every major narrative, every story we tell in our world. If you go back over the movies that you've loved and the stories that they tell, it's always this collision that has taken place. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it's the presence of sin. And I know we don't use that word anymore. It's like an outdated theological term, right? But open your newspaper and you'll find it filled with stories of violence, of unfaithfulness, of betrayal and crime. And you will find that it's all there, right? It's there for us to see. And we just don't even have a way of talking about it anymore. And because of that, we don't have a way to resolve it. We see the distortion of God's good world and the tearing away of relationships and the pain that comes to people. And we wonder, you know, we read all of that but we don't find a way to process it. What to do with the sin and, and the guilt and shame that goes with it. And by the way, I think we always said, you know, if we could get rid of religion, if we can get rid of all this moral stuff, then we won't have this burden of guilt. But our guilt is still with us. And now we're stuck without a way of healing. The prophet Jeremiah said like this. He said, this is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable. Your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. So in this era in which the smallest slight, I mean, right, we call them microaggressions and this Me Too movement, all of these ways we're counting up our injuries. Now there's no way to heal them. There's, there's no source of restoration, of free, finding freedom for our guilt, and also then setting other people free that are around us. And maybe you don't even see yourself doing that. When Sandy and I moved back to Miami, we'd been out of town for 16 years. I went into a shop and I saw the owner of the shop who actually happened to, to be a friend from years earlier. And it wasn't until I saw him, I hadn't seen him for 16 years, that I realized I hadn't forgiven him. And I realized I had real work to do in my heart to get to forgiveness. You ever catch yourself in a place like that? 
The sociologists say we're in a new era. They call it the era of vindictiveness. And the reason is because the, it's like there's this mania over inflicting punishment to people who have done wrong in society or hurt us. And social media is like the crack for this, right? You can go out and give people what they have coming to them. And you can do it so openly. You can hurt them like they've hurt other people. And so here we have this time in which we're so desperately in need of a way to find forgiveness. And we don't have it. It's like we're marooned on a desert island and it's filled with regrets and shame and, and broken relationships we're not sure how to heal. And yet the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to learn this way of forgiveness. Listen to the way what... Uh, Jesus said, for when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Do you hear that? Anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And I read that and I say, okay, Jesus, how in the world am I going to get there? How can we process this toxic, emotional, and spiritual waste that sort of lives in our lives and lives in our community? And that's what I want to look at with you today as we look at the story of Judas. Uh, what Sort of how sin works in our world, the progression of it, um, how Jesus deals with it, and how we can also uh, learn, move toward forgiveness. Now in this chapter, as we've learned, we are at the Passover table with Jesus and his disciples celebrating the day when God rescued Israel from Egyptian slavery. And during the meal, Jesus got up, Scripture tells us, and he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he went along and he, he washed the feet, which, by the way, only a servant who a slave would be asked to do, he washed their feet. And when he returned to his place at the table, he explained to them that he had given them an example. He wanted them to become servants the way he was a servant to them. And then the text moves with what seems like an immense surprise. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, this is a shocking thing because we've just seen the beautiful love of foot washing, sacrificial, and in the midst of this scene is, is evil. It's sin, in our text, we see his sort of sin, how it's working, and its power. John had already told us this to sort of prepare us before he tells us about the meal. He says the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And so it sort of begins, if you could see the progress of sin, it begins by like just a little prompt. And you sort of think about that in our lives, how there can just, ah, oh, there's this little door open. There's this little prompting that takes place. And John tells us about Satan because he's a liar. And he's the advocate for the worst in your life and the worst in our world. He's sort of coaching us. He entices us. He, he edges us toward the wrong that we do. But then notice the progress of sin, Later, as Rebecca read for us, we're told Satan entered into him. You see, it started outside of Judas, and then it came inside. It began further from him. First, it was a prompting action. Then he decided to do the bidding of Satan. 
the one who would destroy Jesus, sort of give flesh and blood to this prompting that Satan had given him. And I think this is a way sin works in us. There's always a progression. You see, what was unthinkable, we slowly, as we're thinking about it, we come to justify it to ourselves. What began just as his desire takes root and grows up until we act on it. And it may take a long time. I remember reading the story of a woman who she was trained in a career of working on ships and, and she would be away from home for long stretches of time. And at one point she was on a ship for about three months. By the way, she was married and she was very committed to her husband. She had great love for him. But during those months at sea, she became enamored of the ship's captain and she ended up sleeping with him. But you know what? On day one, she could have never imagined herself doing that. And actually, she didn't even like the guy. But three months later, she'd given herself away to him. And you say, well, how did that happen? It was just a day at a time, just a slow progression. The possibility grew unchecked by her, and soon it had power over her. And I think that's the thing. We don't, we don't understand how the progress of sin happens in our lives. You know, the story of Cain and Abel is another good example here. Cain competed with his brother Abel when offering a sacrifice to the Lord. God never meant it to be a competition, but Cain made it that, and he became angry with Abel, though Abel had done absolutely nothing to him. And one day the Lord came to Cain to warn him. This is what he said. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. He talked about it like an animal lying in wait to capture him, to overtake him. And he needed to push it out of his life. And if he didn't, a day would come when it would have him. And as you read that, you realize, you know, there's a time when we have control over that thing, but soon it can have control over you and you won't be able to stop it. Now, I, like, I think as with Cain, all of us can find ourselves in such a place. If we give sin a place to grow in our hearts, the day will come, maybe today, you're flirting with something, you're thinking about something, you're toying with this idea, and it's, maybe it's just a prompting now, it's outside of you, and you haven't acted on it, but know that it wants to pounce on you. It wants to take control, and it will. And a day will come in which, like God told Cain, it will be too late. It will have you. So here's Jesus. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, by the way, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this, this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Now, this is a shocking thing. So we've seen the progression of sin in our lives. This is shocking because of this. Think about it. These guys lived together with Jesus for three years. They walked the same paths together. They all saw the miracles of Jesus and heard the teaching of Jesus. Judas has been there all along in almost constant contact with the other guys. And it makes me ask this, how could they not know this? How could they not see that he's the guy? Why are they asking, well, who is this? And here is why. Sin likes to remain hidden. 
it prompts us to keep it under wraps, to keep it a secret. So when Jesus says that one of them will betray him, they're like, that, what do you mean one of us? They have no idea who he's talking about. Judas looked just like everybody else in the room. They couldn't tell. German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer explains the danger of our hidden sin. This is what he said. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved with it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Listen to what he says. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. You hear the, how it works here? So whatever that is in our lives, our secrets, right? They want to be kept that way. They want to be protected. They want to be in hiding because that's the way sin works. And what he says is, look, it's only in the light of day that our sin is, is disempowered, you would say. That's the way it works, doesn't it? Because we've kept it a secret, we've given it a place where it can hide, it continues to exert a, sort, a, a kind of permanence over us. And it, seem, it can control us. I remember reading a Malcolm Gladwell's book called Talking to Strangers. And in his book, if you haven't read any of his books, it's a terrific book, he points out this guy. You may recognize as Bernie Madoff. He's the guy who, through his Ponzi scheme, stole about $50 billion of money of institutions and individuals. But you know what the thing it was? People looked at him. Even somebody who had invested a lot of money with him went and did an investigation and still kept his money there. You know why? You couldn't see it. He looked like any other guy. He just looked like normal. And the reason is because this is exactly what sin does. You see, we want to believe people are good and faithful, and we want everybody to believe that about us. Right? That's what the disciples believe about Judas. So even when he leaves the room in the middle of the dinner, they think, well, he's the keeper of the money. He's just going out to run an errand. They had no idea. The reality is this. When you keep your sins a secret, they have power over you. They will control you and your life. We give them, as I mentioned, a sense of permanence. But when they're brought into the light of day, they wither and die. They lose their power. And so sin in your life wants to stay hidden. And so the reality is healing comes as we share that with somebody else. As we tell them the truth. It can't be with anybody, just anybody. It needs to be with somebody who's worthy of trust. Somebody who can hear and who can be a representative for Jesus as you share your life. Here's James. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, here's the way of healing. Share that with somebody else. Talk to somebody you trust. And so there's a progression, and it wants to hide. But there's one other reality that I skipped over in this section. This is what we're told about Jesus. Jesus was troubled in spirit. Now, those are words difficult to translate. They mean he's distressed or disturbed or really more like he's heartbroken. Now, I know we typically look at sin and it's like it's a transgression of God's law, right? A moral law. We have broken, and that's all true. But that's not all of it. 
Jesus is heartbroken. He loves his disciples, Judas too. And so here, the sin in our lives, it breaks the very heart of God. We hear this teaching, by the way, all across the Bible. When the world became filled with sin at the time of Noah, we are told simply, God's heart was deeply troubled. His heart was troubled. You see, he created us to live in his peace and his joy, and he saw nothing but dislocation and destruction. When Israel sinned, this is what we're told, surely as a faithless wife leaves her husband, so you have been faithless to me. Why does he use that relationship? It's heartbreaking for the living God. You see, God is more than an offended lawgiver. He is the brokenhearted lover of his people. And yes, he gets angry over sin, but listen to his heart. And it's because sin creates this relational divide. It's why it's so difficult for us to process. It's why it's so difficult for us to find forgiveness. It's more than our moral sense of rightness. Your very heart is hit and broken. And so listen to the heart of Jesus. He's, he's grieving over this situation. He desires fellowship with you. And so let me tell you, whatever's gone down in your life, I don't know what it is, whatever you have done, you need to know this about Jesus. He loves you and he desires your joy. He wants your flourishing. He wants your peace. And he has forgiveness for you. Well, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, he's in the presence of his own betrayer and look at what he does. The door to grace is open. First, he doesn't play the victim card. He doesn't look out there and say, I can't believe what one of you guys would do to me. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't go for self-protection. He simply announces the news that one of them will betray him. And why? Because one of them knows it's Judas himself. Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Why does he do this? Well, the whole scene is all about loving this guy, Judas. And let me tell you why. He, Jesus also washes his feet. He also serves him at that meal. And then note how the disciples are seated. We know from the picture, and by the way, Leonardo da Vinci didn't get this right. He does, have, he does have John the apostle at the right of Jesus. And we know that because Simon asked John to talk, to whisper something into Jesus's ear and he would be close to his ear. But you know who the only person you can really easily serve where they are? They're immediately to your left. And so when Jesus serves a bit of bread that's actually been dipped in honey and spices, who does he serve it to? He serves it directly to Judas. And you know where Judas is? He's directly to Jesus' left. And you know what that's considered at a Jewish feast? It's the seat of honor. It's the seat of highest honor. And so sometime that evening, Jesus had to go to Judas and say, Judas, I, really, I would like for you to sit with me tonight. Would you sit beside me? And so he's offering this. And by the way, just doing that at the Passover meal was a sign of unique and special friendship. But do you see what Jesus is doing in all of this? He is leaving the door open for Judas to repent. And he's loving him to the very end. Do you know this is where Jesus is with you? I mean, if he's there with Judas, his betrayer, do you think he's any less with any of us? That's where he is with all of us. 
You know your sin and you wonder how you could possibly be forgiven. And Jesus is over there and he's treating you like his honored guest. He's extended the bread with honey. And he's there out of love for you, extending his grace. He's, he's like the prodigal son who runs out to meet the son who's, who's wasted his estate. And by the way, you know to run and meet someone was to close the distance and to do it is honoring that person. And he's ready to throw a feast to celebrate that his son has come home. Do we, do we get this love of Jesus? This is where Jesus, you know what? You think God is angry with you over your sin? And he sent Jesus to close the distance between him and you because he loves you and he wants your freedom. I remember years ago, if you haven't read it, the powerful book entitled Unbroken by Lauren Hildebrand. I like the book a lot better than the movie. They're both the true story of this guy. His name is Louis Zamperini. And that's him from the Olympics. He won an Olympic medal. And it's a beautiful story of his life. He ended up in World War II. Amazing story of survival. He was in an aircraft, shot down over the Pacific. And after 47 days on a raft, he looked on the horizon. It was a ship. I've been rescued. Well, it was the Japanese, and they took him to a prisoner of war camp. And you know what? When he got to the prisoner of war camp, they knew he was a famous guy because he had been an Olympian. And one of those guards made it, made it his mission to destroy Louis. And drip, drop by drop, to drain every ounce of dignity and honor from his life. His nickname was The Bird. You see a picture of him there. He survived physically. He was liberated after the war, but he was the shell of a man. And the guy who was unbroken by that long, all those days in the raft and all that he had been through, he was finally broken. You know why he was broken? All he could think of was revenge. He couldn't wait. He planned in his mind a million times how he would go back to Japan and kill the bird. He was going to do it. He was determined to give this man what he deserved. And so much so that it caused the destruction of his marriage and his relationships. He was, really became a shell of a man as a result, broken by the madness over this revenge that he sought. And one night he was invited in California out to a Billy Graham crusade and he heard the message of the gospel and he recognized a forgiveness that he needed. And it led him on this journey where he received forgiveness from God. And as a result of this, he realized he needed to forgive the bird and the other guys who had been his captors he, that, that had mistreated him. So he flew to Japan and he went to the apartment. He tracked down the bird. He went to the apartment and he wanted to offer him forgiveness. But you know what happened? The bird refused to come down from his apartment and receive the forgiveness. Imagine that. You know, for Judas, there was also a moment like that. Here is Jesus. He knew, G Judas knew what it meant when he extended the bread to him, when he seated him beside him, when he washed his feet. Here was Jesus, and there was a moment right there where he could respond and repent, and the healing would so easily come. He could rest in Jesus, and that moment passed. And as I think about that, I think, you know, I think we find ourselves in those moments too, right? When the Spirit of God is prompting us and just saying, you've got to deal with this. This is your moment. Or maybe the Spirit of God is trying to protect you, just telling you, don't take that step. Don't go in that direction. And by the way, in that moment, if you let the moment pass, it'll be gone. And it was for the bird. 
You can be liberated by this power of forgiveness. And soon Judas, as it says, the night, he went out into the night. He left Jesus and went into the darkness. And he carried out his plan. Now, I have to believe that after the cross, the disciples looked back on the actions of Jesus and they were like, oh my goodness. We cannot believe the kind of love that he showed to Judas. They could see everything in a new light because of the cross. And I hope that's where we are. As we've seen the cross of Jesus on our behalf, we begin to realize, wow, it's not just Judas. I need this grace. Now we know the love of Jesus. And the, the reality is there's, we're stunned by the extent that Jesus would go to beyond the foot washing and the dinner all the way to the cross to redeem us and love us. And now the words of Jesus, they make so much sense to me. Do you know what? Jesus said this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You know, we know in the early church, their favorite verse wasn't, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know that it's this verse because they repeat it over and over again because it's the thing that made anybody who was a Christ follower not look like anybody else because they knew such forgiveness from Jesus they saw a forgiveness and a, and a healing of relationships. Jesus even cried out from the cross, right? Father, forgive them for they, know, they do not know what they are doing. And it's when we see that, that as the apostle Paul says, he says this, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? It's when we realize I've been God's enemy too. And I've been forgiven. I see what Jesus has done for me. It's then that we see that other person in need of the same grace that we ourselves have received. Maybe you notice that I tied the forgiveness that we offer to each other to our forgiveness to God from God, and it's because the two are intimately connected. As, as you're forgiven, as you see the cross, you find yourselves equipped with a power that's not your own to forgive other people. Well, let me tell you what happened to Louis Zamperini. In 1952, after he came to faith in Jesus, he decided to go back to the very camp where he was held. You'll see him here with one of his buddies at the camp gate. He wanted to go there, and guess now who are the prisoners in the camp? It's none other than the guards that had held him. They hadn't found the bird yet at that time, but they're all there. And he had the opportunity to address them and speak to them. And when he saw the guards that had held him, I'll, I'll let you tell him what happened. I looked out and saw them coming down the aisle. And of course, I recognized each of one of them vividly. I didn't even think of my reaction. I jumped off the stage, ran down and threw my arms around them, and they withdrew from me. They couldn't understand the forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? It's like the father of the prodigal son. He runs out, he hugs these guys who had mistreated him for those couple of years. And it was so overwhelming to them, they didn't even know what to think. And he led them back into a room and he sat, and with an interpreter, he shared the gospel with them. Every single one of them but one that day said, I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to know who Jesus is. I want to know where this comes from. And then afterward, Louis, when he discovered that the bird was still alive, wrote him a letter. In part, the letter said this, 
The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God, I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo Prison. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Do you see how this love changes the world? But it begins with us saying we were God's enemies and God loved us anyway. And that's why Jesus came into our world. And so let me just ask today, I mean, right now, do you see like a little progression happening? Maybe it's in your thinking. Maybe you're starting to justify something before you would not have accepted. This is an opportunity for you, right? To say, it gets to stop here as I'm gonna turn my attention toward Christ. I'm gonna talk with somebody about this. Or maybe something has been hiding in your life for way too long and you can see its impact and control over you. And you decide, I'm gonna find somebody I can trust. I know I can't tell just anybody this, but I'm gonna tell somebody this. And you'll see when that happens, God will begin to tear away its power in your life and give you a real freedom. And all of us walking around in the city, hopefully, with the awareness of how we've been loved by God. What are we gonna do with that? And learning this love that makes it power, gives us the power to love our enemies. Let's pray, let's pray together. Father, this is a word we need so much in our, in our world, Lord. There's such a piling on of attacking people and sometimes in the most public ways. And, and Lord, people do that with glee. It's like they celebrate it. And in all of this, we have a savior who hasn't done that with us, but instead has taken it upon himself. And so teach us this way of Jesus, O oh Lord. Father, thank you that through the power of your spirit and the cross of Jesus, sin doesn't have to reign in our hearts and lives anymore. That we can walk in the light. We can come into the truth and find a freedom because of the cross of Jesus. And Lord, we give you thanks for that. And we pray that you make us bearers of that grace to others. And we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand as we close out today?